everybody. Thank you for being here. Welcome to Pillars. Of course, I am Dylan Bowman, and today we have something a little different. Today, I am sharing a lecture from the Pillars app delivered by my big brother, Jason Bowman. It's a lecture entitled Balance. And I wasn't going to post an episode this week, but I felt this material was timely and appropriate for me, and I figured it might be relevant to some of your lives and therefore worthy of sharing here in the podcast feed in lieu of a normal episode. As I said, the title of this lecture is Balance, and I have been feeling particularly imbalanced recently between my day job pillars, the podcast, running, being a husband, having two dogs. I've been on the road traveling a bit too. And I've just been feeling as if I have been drinking from a fire hose seven days a week for what feels like months on end. And recently, I've also been training pretty hard too, um, which I'm happy to say has been going really well and I'm thoroughly enjoying but I have just been wrecked. I am finally back home in Portland after a few weeks on the road, training and working in California. And though it was a great productive trip and I'm really enjoying everything I'm working on right now, I have just been consumed by exhaustion, careening towards what is an obvious burnout implosion for a while now. And I'm sure many of you can relate. So this lecture is my way of pressing pause on the pod for a week while hopefully still giving you something of value that you can listen to. And we plan to be back to our regularly scheduled program next week. But for now, please welcome my big brother, Jason Bowman. And if you can, I would encourage you to listen to this while sitting still, maybe with your eyes closed. But if you do it on a run, it's just as good. Enjoy. Hey guys, this is Jason. Welcome. I want to talk today about balance. Um, There's an especially exalted state in the practice that I'm detailing in these discourses. In Sanskrit, that state is called nirodha, which is best translated as suspension. Now, in order to get a sense of what is meant by this and why it is considered in some way to be the ultimate goal of the practice... I'd like to offer first a couple images. The first is that of a swing set. Think back or feel back into what it's like to ride a swing set. The simplicity of it, the rhythm of it, the kind of sensational aesthetic of changing momentum as you move, the rushing of air, the change in the view, the dynamic of acceleration in the body. In the midst of all that movement, there exists a short period of complete and total stillness, right in between going up and coming down on the swing set. We find that perfect example of suspension. There's a sense of weightlessness, a feeling of being perfectly propped, supported in such a way that is indicative to me of a sense of innocent freedom. I urge you to remember what that feels like physically, in the body, on the swing, hung up in the air for a split second at a time. This suspension could hardly be accessed through a more simple method. 
And I think this is why people like riding swing sets. Because in that moment between opposites, between up and down, there's a wide and weightless experience of pause. Time pauses, the mind pauses, even gravity pauses. Until, of course, in the very next moment, it re-exerts its will, and the momentum of movement continues, balancing and rebalancing itself. The second image I'd like you to consider is perhaps even more simple. Think of a sapling, a young, slender, vulnerable little tree just planted somewhere in your town. Whenever you see a small tree like this, you will invariably see something else too. There are two tethers attached to the tree and connect it in opposite directions to the ground. The tree needs help to stand up straight. Its structure isn't yet reliable. And because of this arrangement, because the tree is tied to the planet in opposing lines, it grows upwards. It is suspended. If one of the tethers were to be shorter than the other, or stronger, or in any way different than the other, the tree would lose that suspension. It would grow crooked, in which case it would be far more threatened by the force of gravity, working against its natural expression of uprightness. But if the two lines are congruent, you can look at the tree and find there a visual sense that its structure is unimpeded, sovereign, free. Through balance, it grows as if proud and in spite of the forces that want it to collapse. This is suspension, nirodha. Now, in both examples I've just offered, this exalted state of suspension is delivered by a sort of tension, by two forces that oppose each other. It doesn't take too much poetic license here to see also that the entirety of our existence is also characterized by tension created by opposing forces. The things we want for ourselves and the things others want of us create tension. Our wounds from the past and our narratives of the future create tension. Objects of hope and fear create tension. Our own impulses towards being who we are, while aiming also at becoming something different, create tension. We are on a swing set, always. We are like a tree trying to find uprightness amidst environmental and personal imbalances. So, suspension, then, is created through cultivating balance. There are two pillars on which this practice is traditionally thought to be propped. They are what's called, again in Sanskrit, abhyasya and varagyam. These are commonly translated as practice and non-attachment, or differently stated, effort and openness to what comes from your effort. These are the two pillars of the practice. It is stated quite explicitly that the state of nirodha, of suspension, of balance, comes only as a product of these two things working together. On the one hand, we are tasked with doing our very best, trying. And on the other, we are tasked with releasing expectation for what we receive from trying our best. These are the forces of up and down on a swing. 
the two guy wires attached to the sapling. When they are balanced, we are balanced, which is to say we feel the sense of support and freedom and self-sovereignty. But what happens much more often, of course, is that one or the other of these things take undue importance. I was talking with a friend recently, and she said something along the lines of, everyone is either a control freak or an escape artist. We are talking within the reference of romantic relationships, but I thought immediately of this balance between practice and non-attachment. Those times in which the pillar of practice has undue importance are marked by the quality of control. We try hard. We do everything we are supposed to do. We take great strides to be better people, better partners, better athletes. And unchecked, this leads us not to be in control of our circumstances, which is what we've been after all along, but rather to become control freaks, to become addicted to familiarity, to certainty. We lose the flexibility to take what comes, which is where the counterpart arises, non-attachment. It is only when we release our aggression around effort that the effort itself is allowed to take root, to blossom. But that also can go too far. It is perhaps a bit less prevalent in our society in which achievement and task management seem to define so much of our self-worth, but an overemphasis on non-attachment leaves us unfeeling, aloof, and nihilistically harboring attitudes of futility, paralyzed, unable to practice, to act, to be creative. Simply, we become escapists. If nothing I do gets me what I want it to, then why act at all? This is the attitude of escapism. It is giving up. And it's easy to see how an imbalance in these two things leads towards a grading experience of living. And we can take solace in dedicating ourselves to the task of balancing effort with non-effort. And in doing so, we find our own uprightness. Freedom. Practice is trying. Non-attachment is trusting. Both of these things are so important in our relationships. We have to somehow engage and step back at the same time. I saw a passage the other day by Aldous Huxley on this subject that I want to share here. He said, and I quote, Take the piano teacher. He always says, relax, relax, relax. But how can you relax while your fingers are rushing over the keys? Yet they have to relax. The singing teacher and the golf pro say exactly the same thing. And in the realm of spiritual exercises, we find that the person who teaches mental prayer does too. We have somehow to combine relaxation with activity. The personal conscious self being a kind of small island in the midst of an enormous area of consciousness. What has to be relaxed is the personal self, the self that tries too hard, that thinks it knows what is what, that uses language. This has to be relaxed in order that the multiple powers at work within the deeper and wider self may come through and function as they should. In all psychophysical skills, 
we have this curious fact of the law of reversed effort. The harder we try, the worse we do the thing. End quote. So good. I love that. And now take also one of my very favorite definitions of yoga, given by one of its prolific lineage holders, BKS Iyengar. He said something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here, that yoga is learning to cure what need not be endured and to endure what cannot be cured. This sentence gets at the very heart of balance, of suspension. Again, yoga is learning to cure what need not be endured and to endure what cannot be cured. There are ways we can take action to cure certain maladies, and we can take that action intelligently, efficiently, gracefully. But inevitably, there are as many things that exist outside of our personal realm of influence. And instead of trying, affecting, forcing, we must instead instead simply endure, open, relax. This is the prescription. Effort and let go. Try and trust. Albeit a difficult task, it is an incredibly simple one. And what I'd like to do now is employ a bit of that poetic license to find other areas in which we find these two pillars, these pairs of opposites as they're called. First, with relation to the physical practice of yoga, the poses are methods of cultivating both strength and length simultaneously. This is something of an unending riddle in the practice. In any given pose, how can I be both spacious and compact, rooted and growing, both strong and long? These are contradictions. They are, in definition, impossible to achieve perfectly, but yet we try. The integrity of the structure is dependent on the balance. But more interestingly, it is this physical balance that becomes the scaffolding for the mental balance that arises alongside it. Through this balance, we find strength and flexibility of mind. Then this meeting of physical flexibility and strength has something to offer one's temperament, one's personality. Can you be both flexible and strong in your relationships? which is to say, can you be grounded in your own education, viewpoints, opinions, ideas, while at the same time still be open to being wrong, to not seeing the whole picture, to make use of the viewpoints and opinions of others without a felt sense of threat to your ego? Along those lines, there's a pair of opposites to balance between tradition and personal experience. The things we learn must always be integrated into our very own understanding of ourselves and our unique lives. Over-reliance on tradition is religious fundamentalism. But we all do this so often. We purport the things that we've learned through our own personal tradition, whether it be a style of yoga or literature or a certain philosophy of running, to be the best, the most valuable. We have a strong tendency to lean on the certainty of our own traditions as a way to blind ourselves to the possibility or threat of change. So we must integrate the things we've the things we're taught into a dynamic system of flux. 
But like all of these dualities, everything is only as good as its opposite. Because there's also definitely such a thing as overemphasizing one's own personal experience over tradition. And by that I mean if we only make decisions based upon what feels good, we miss out on distinct opportunities for growth in doing the hard thing over the pleasurable thing. When we focus only on what makes us feel good and on our own individuality, we miss out on thousands of years of wisdom shared by other people thinking about similar problems and practicing similar methods of overcoming those problems. Tradition and personal experience need each other. In the middle is the suspension. This pair of opposites also includes an overemphasis on what is often called bliss. Bliss is only one polarity of the pair of opposites. On the other end is suffering. The practice is as much about learning how to suffer with grace as it is about learning how to maximize pleasure. There's a lot more to say on this one, which is perhaps one we'll circle back to at some point. But here, another pair of opposites. Empathy and boundary. How can we take care of others without harming ourselves? How can we take care of ourselves without harming others? It is these questions, these riddles, that define again the state of suspension. Success is finding the middle as it shifts around moment to moment, circumstance to circumstance. And how about the balance between being yourself and fitting in? Such an important one. Each of us has the drive to differentiate ourselves, to find an unmistakable uniqueness in our offering to the world. We want so very badly to be able to be ourselves, but that is at great odds with an even stronger and more fundamental desire to fit in. This is a contradiction, a paradox. As one of my heroes, Tom York, said, I want to be alone and I want people to notice me both at the same time. How do we do that? The practice is to come into a more constant and also more interesting answer to this question. A couple more examples to round us out here. There exists a crucially important pair of opposites in what's called the doctrine of the two truths which states that at any one moment, there are two truths, one of which is absolute and the other of which is relative. Now, I'm going to be a bit reductive here, but suffice it to say that the absolute truth is things you find in like saccharine New Age quips like, we are all one, everything is made of love, you always have everything you need to be happy, etc. The relative truth is what is immediately obvious in the here and now like the fact that I have a subjectivity and I do not in any way feel at one with other human beings. In fact, a great deal of them I have no understanding of at all. Additionally, I experience a great number of things besides love. I have also things like an email inbox and bills and to-do lists, all of which certainly have influence over my felt sense of happiness from moment to moment. The takeaway from the two truths is that, again, they need each other. Overemphasis on the relative truth is called anxiety. It's when all you can see is directly in front of you. 
There's no context. And everything quotidian only suffocates and paralyzes. Which is why it's sometimes so important to do something as simple as look up into the night sky. To gaze upon infinity, mystery, perfection. What happens when you do this is simply a memory of the absolute truth. To remember the absolute truth is to give context to the outsized influence we place on the mundane. It is almost impossible to be anxiety-ridden when looking at the night sky, or the ocean's horizon, or a fantastic piece of art. But overemphasis on the absolute is itself also problematic. It is complacency. We must still attend to detail of the everyday, show up on time, manage our responsibilities and relationships while seeing them against a vast backdrop. So we could say the pair of opposites here is the ability to zoom in and zoom out at the same time. Zoom all the way in, look for and dedicate yourself to the details of every action. Zoom all the way out and remember the perfection of your own mortality, your uncertainty, and your connection to all things. Then, finally, there also exists a balance between what we are doing with this very conversation and also what must unclench around it. Because here we are, essentially, using philosophy or something to try to figure everything out. Trying to figure everything out using philosophical methods is also only as good as its opposite. We can have a philosophical discussion to categorize and evaluate ideas for whole living or happiness, but those discussions are only as good as our ability to let go of them, to realize that however hard we try, we will never figure everything out. And it's quite comical, really, when you think about it, this futility. We have to try always to do our best while understanding that no matter how hard we try, it will never be complete. These are the two pillars, and with equal footing on both, we find suspension, freedom, connection, engagement, happiness, creativity, harmony, etc., etc. This goes even for balance itself. Trying always to stay perfectly balanced is self-sabotaging. It is another mechanism of over-control. Sometimes losing balance on purpose is a wonderful way to freshen back into the state of suspension. Sometimes being a little bit reckless on purpose provides the necessary oppositional energy to come back into that state of uprightness. Maybe even balance is only as good as its opposite. Maybe balance and a healthy bit of recklessness need each other. Food for thought. Generally, I think the most important part of all of this is the understanding that we will always have to start again in the act of balance, of suspension. Just like on the swing set, you get it for a second and then you come careening back towards earth just to start again. As long as we're alive, we're moving which means the balance will always shift. The continuity with which we begin again is the success of balance. And we'll explore this more in the next discourse. 
can balance itself include imbalance in its definition? And can the continuity of beginning again redefine the health of balance? For now, please feel free to sit still for some time if you'd like to let all this language settle into its opposite, its corollary, which is, of course, just as important. And that is silence, stillness, doing nothing at all. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Thank you so much to Jason. That really is the type of stuff that you can listen to over and over. And therefore, it will live in your podcast feed for you to revisit as necessary going forward. I think that's probably the sixth or seventh time I've listened to that one myself. If you like that material, you can find more on the Pillars app, iOS or Android app store. You can also find the link in the show notes. Of course, always appreciate you guys being here. We'll talk to you again very soon. Okay. Love you. Bye.